But it's my pleasure to introduce you to Pete Dobson, who is the academic director of the Daybrook Science Park. And he has been here in all my time while I've been at Oxford. Um, but we share some things in common, and I think I'll start from the roots. Um, Pete is a Cornishman, and in fact when I was a boy growing up in Plymouth, which actually has invaded part of Cornwall, I remember listening to the radio and there was something involving this A.L. Rouse who said he was the only Cornishman at Oxford. So it was a great surprise when I became a lecturer here to discover that Pete was not only alive and well, but fully Cornish, and even possibly with links to Plymouth Argyle. Now Pete, in fact, has had an illustrious career. He was a lecturer in physics at Imperial College and was also the um, senior principal scientist at the, I think it was the Phillips Research Laboratories, came to Oxford in 1988 when he was appointed a university lecturer but also uh, obtained a fellowship in Queen's College, a rather small college next to the Grand Teddy Hall. <laughs> he managed to um, carry out his duties of eating swan and other things for many years. He became professor in I think, 1996 and then helped to set up with in the early stages helped to set up the course in engineering and material science which prospered very much under his um, strong support for many years and he began research in the 1990s leading into nanomaterials, nanoparticles, optoelectronics and so on. In 1999 he set up Oxonia Limited which was a kind of spin out of all the nanoparticles at the time. And in 2000, another successful spin-out was Oxford Biomedicals Limited. And then in 2002, he became, as many people pointed out, Lord of the Manor, the academic director of the Begbrook um, Science Park. He has many interests in, I think, almost in nano-everything as far as I can tell. Environmental technology, material science, renewable energy and biotechnology. And last comment about him, as his wife said, he is, of a sample of one, he is the best husband I ever had. <laughs> <laughs> I talked before letting Pete gain a revenge on me and um, give some thanks. And first of all, I'd like to thank Tom Hockaday and Steve Lee of Isis Innovation Limited. And secondly, Johnny Seacombe, who have, between them, sponsored the lecture today. Anyway, Pete Dawson. Thanks very much, Alistair, for those uh, kind words. Uh, when I came to this department so in 1988, um, one of the first things that happened to me here was that I found that they'd forgotten to give me an office. And uh, I had the rare privilege in those days of being allowed to work out of my car, parked in the car park. But Steve Sheard, appointed at the same time as me, did have an office and very kindly allowed me to use his uh, for, for much of the time. Now I can't complain because I've got this massive office up at Begbrook, an old farmhouse. Uh, I don't occupy the whole thing, although sometimes it seems like it, they say. Uh, but it's uh, quite a change from the days when I was camped down in the car park here. While I'm on this picture, I'm not saying anything explicitly today about the uh, wonderful building we built at Begbrook for spin-out companies, but here's a picture of it. It's the Centre for Innovation and Enterprise. And this has completely confounded the critics within the university who said that we could never run such a thing. Uh, we've uh, not only running it, but the team we have at Begbrook managed to fill this to 100% capacity within a year. And we have a waiting list that would fill it uh, probably again if we had a similar building. Uh, we hope to have new buildings in the next few years when the controversial decision about a new road is made. What I'm going to do today is tell you a little bit about the park, uh, very briefly, because whilst this is my full-time day job, there's lots of stuff going on at Pegbrook, which has led to us really trying to figure out what things like innovation mean, and I'm going to say a few words about that. And then when I've finished rambling on about innovation, 
I'd like to give you a snapshot of some of the projects we've got currently happening at Begbrook and which are growing largely because of the activities up there but also because of uh, work with colleagues in many departments which are expanding uh, some of this so-called nanotechnology. So here we are. The university purchased this site um, back in 1998, and it was exactly as it looks in the picture here, with an old Dutch barn which is falling down, lots of sheds in various states of repair, farmhouse which was a <coughs> condemned building at that stage, and you could only enter it with a hard hat, and even then there were bits of floor missing, I haven't got a new picture. We're waiting for the leaves to come on the trees and take a picture shortly because we've now got this wonderful Centre for Innovation and Enterprise here. We've got a huge new building which colleagues from engineering are starting to occupy over at the far side here with a supercomputer in it and so on. The useful sheds still exist and are occupied by people, but one day they will be demolished to make way for new buildings. So far, a total of around 35 million has been spent on this from a whole variety of sources. And the university actually owns the 350 acres or so in which this stands. So there's a lot of scope up there for future development. We focus very much on advanced materials. The materials department really spearheaded the whole operation up there. And right now, it is home to an operation called Begbrook Nano, and I see Alison's at the back here. Alison Crossley runs a brilliant materials characterization service which acts like a magnet, quite frankly, to many of the companies that are up there and to uh, people who work with me. So I'm going to talk about innovation. I'm also going to, uh, as I've been sponsored by ISIS, I've got to say how much I appreciate the way, <laughs> the way that they promote commercialization. And I really do mean that, and I, I hope this will come across when I describe two of the companies that I've been involved with starting. So I'll describe two of the spin-offs that I've been involved with. Uh, there's a time gap between innovation and commercialization, and this is one of the things, I think, which uh, the government, despite all of its uh, words about innovation, has not yet fully taken on board. And I'd like to just talk about that time gap because I think that's one of the lessons that I personally and we collectively in Oxford have learned about this. Then, really to round it off, I'd like to scamper quickly through many of the projects uh, which have been initiated largely while I've been in this job at Begbrook. I had originally thought I'd run my research down to zero while I was operating up there, but uh, in fact uh, the reverse has happened and I've seem to have uh, expanded. Uh, so what's innovation? It's between when you create some IP, some intellectual property, file patents and so on, and when you commercialise things. So invention is the first stage, and a lot of people confuse invention and innovation, but invention is what happens when you actually create the IP. You've then got to convert that into business, into money, somehow or other, and that's what I think is the innovative step. Interestingly, this is, I've been saying this for many years, and this was exactly what the Technology Strategy Board uh, picked up when Graham Spittle was in the process of forming it. Managing innovation is quite a tricky thing, and I don't think we fully understand yet how to do this. And uh, one of the things we did at Begbrook when we got some of this higher education innovation fund money was introduced something called enterprise fellowships, which I'll, I'll mention. So here's a sort of diagram showing this. You have academics doing research, invent something, and then you spin out a company or you license something, and everything starts happening within spin-out companies. You might form partnerships and merge, but it's that from this step to where you've actually got products on the market and you're beginning to make money, this is the innovation step. It's very much what some people regard as uh, stages, uh, shall we say, three to seven or eight in the technology readiness uh, jargon, which has come out of NASA. So how did we encourage innovation? Uh, when we got uh, a reasonable amount of funding from the Higher Education Innovation Fund, we introduced these things called enterprise fellowships. And 
there's another thing in Oxford we do rather well. That's the Oxford Science Enterprise Centre down at the business school, which has truly enormous audiences every Tuesday night, uh, undergraduates mainly, listening to lectures on how to set up uh, business enterprises. There are courses introduced to the undergraduate curriculum. This department pioneered them. Materials department has also got some very good courses. But as far as I know, we're the only two departments where there are courses actually embedded within the undergraduate curriculum. What we have done at Oxford, I think, is created a completely new ethos for invention and innovation. I think that we, we have begun to break through the barrier that this is actually a respectable thing to do. And my activities at Begbrook in creating a new type of science park, I like to think, are going to take this a stage further forward. So this is another diagram just to show, uh, again, in steps which are very Oxford-related, what goes on. So you have academics inventing things. You have OXEC, the Enterprise Centre, uh, with their courses at the business school. There's an annual um, uh, venture festival in Oxford, which also raises awareness. So you get these inventions made, and then the folks here in ISIS decide whether it's going to be a licensed deal going straight down to some end users or a spin-off company. If it goes the spin-off route, we get involved because we provide space and industrial linkages. We've got a very powerful network. There are two knowledge transfer networks also based at Begbrook. One is run by Colin Johnson on advanced materials, especially for the aerospace and automotive industry. And the other one is run by uh, a, a former member of this department, now in Earth Sciences, Simon Jackman, on environmental aspects. We have a knowledge transfer partnership office, and I'm pleased to say that most of the knowledge transfer partnership fellows have actually been going into the engineering department. And this is an ongoing thing. It'll be renamed this year. One of the things that you quickly learn in this game is that in innovation, it's rebadging and renaming things is one of the names of the game as well. So there's an awful lot going on, and I mustn't forget the continuing professional development uh, uh, run by Rebecca Lingwood, who used to work with us at Begbrook. Um, she operates uh, closely with us on many courses, which are really to bolster the whole linkage between some of the new topics that are spinning off and uh, traditional business. So uh, this, too, is a, is a very important part of our activities. Now, these enterprise fellowships, we had three different types of them. Uh, they arose, by the way, because Gareth Roberts used to be my line manager, and he said they tried this in Scotland and it didn't work too well. Can you, can you go up there, send some of your folks up there, and figure out how to make the system work? So we did that, and we came away with the idea that we should have three distinct types. Uh, these industrial research people are essentially postgrads and postdocs who've invented something and want to actually run with it and commercialize it. The next category, business development fellows, were people who we saw as being embedded within <coughs> ISIS innovation, possibly helping these people, and at the same time almost serving like an apprenticeship with ISIS innovation so that they could, in the future, become program managers within ISIS. But there was a third type we also thought of, and that was somebody who had worked with the CPD unit to develop modular courses in key areas. And we kicked off with all of these three categories and we mentored them from the team of myself and my program managers at Begbrook. And in the three years we ran this, I think we were very successful. We had 17 fellows, set up six companies, several licensed deals, more than 17 patents, and of quite a few new courses in three years. Only one of the 17 has actually not stayed in this field of knowledge transfer. Only one, which I think is a pretty good uh, record. That one is probably earning more than everyone because he's now in a bank, but uh, <laughs> you know, that, that's engineering for you. Um, I've said a lot about ISIS, and I want to just uh, use two slides that I pinched. This one I... I re reformatted to make it a little bit more uh, clear uh, for certain lighting in rooms, so I, I removed the dark background and inverted all the letters and things like that. Uh, Tom Hockaday, who's here, tells me that 
Already this 36 number here is a little bit on the low side. They've recently expanded quite a little bit. Now, the, the Oxford model of uh, innovation, as this is often called, is organized like this for a very good reason. You've got a, a kind of wall between the administration in the university that looks after all incoming contracts, and then this ISIS innovation are the people we go to when we file uh, patent uh, suggestions, and these are the people who are going to commercialize our patents. And you want to have some sort of wall between the incoming and the outgoing with these feedback loops so that nobody does anything very naughty like taking money from one company and then either forming another company without that originator's knowledge or even licensing it to a rival. So these arrows here refer to the checks and balances that ISIS makes when they're confronted with an invention. They find out where that academic got the money from and then uh, the information comes back. Uh, that yes or no, it's okay to license this to Rolls-Royce or General Electric or Pratt & Whitney or whatever. Uh, this system, I think, runs really well. As a very happy end user of it, I've got to say uh, this has worked really well for me and uh, colleagues. And I think it's a slick operation now that's developed in Oxford and one that is being copied worldwide. This is uh, another ISIS slide that I've pinched, but this shows... Uh, where we're positioned at Begbrook, uh, this was a more recent aerial photograph taken by my wife and I in a helicopter on a rather foggy day, so that's why it's a little bit foggy and we've compressed it to a small size down here. We're waiting for a nice sunny day in the spring to take the next picture. We're now under the uh, line management of the Maths and Physical Life Sciences Division here. Um, so we uh, fit in under that division ISIS Innovation and Research Services are under the administration, and the Business School, of course, reports through the Social Sciences Division. But there's very strong linkage between these four at the bottom here. Um, a typical cost of a startup when we, when we formed Oxonica would have been like this. This was pre full economic cost days. So, this amount of money here looks on the small side by today's standards. This would be more like 200, 250 uh, K nowadays. And this particular one that started Oxonica was a small grant running for two years for a postdoc. We made a lot of discoveries in those days, filed quite a lot of IP, some of which was good, some of which was bad. It got filtered out later. We hunted around and found a future CEO and kicked everything off. And the typical amount of money you might raise is around about a million pounds to kick off. And that would probably keep you going for about two years with a few milestone conditions along the way. And in that time, you would acquire premises, build up your team, get some equipment, do much more serious market information uh, gathering than you do there usually. You generate more IP, which in this case, if you're wise, belongs to the company rather than the university. Uh, but you retain very strong university contacts. And it doesn't have to be just with Oxford. In Oxonica, we formed relationships with about four universities. And then, as usually happens, you have to go for a second, maybe a third round of funding. And these are the sorts of numbers. This is where it gets fuzzy. In recent years, people have tried to go straight from here, straight into an IPO. And uh, that is quite an interesting model, one we're looking at at the moment with interest, with some of the new companies which are in their sort of embryo stage up at Begbrook. I'm going to tell you about my experience now with two companies, Oxonica and Oxford Biosensors. Um, this one was an uh, engineering company, although Gareth Wakefield had been a postdoc in materials, and I have to say that all my life I've worked strongly with the materials department here, and I often look upon this as half engineering, half materials, especially because we couldn't have gotten anywhere without the electron microscopy uh, that the materials department has and now uh, is operated by Alison Crossley. Uh, Oxford Biosensors was a joint effort between chemistry and engineering and Peter Lee and myself got together with Alan Hill and Lewitt Wong. We tried to form Oxford Biosensors way before the year 2000. In fact, we got very close to founding it in 
1994-5, but this was before the days when ISIS was so highly organized and slick as it is today, and we sort of let the potential investor slip between our fingers. I remember well because that first investor would have put enough money into the company to have really taken us much further than we, are, we, we were under the later arrangement. But uh, this is another reason why I think ISIS has done such a, a great job kicking off under Tim Cook's leadership and carrying on in the same way as it does today. Anyway, Oxonica started after about seven years of background research. Um, its current focus is in these areas, energy, environment, and healthcare. Very much solution provider. We started off in the first six months as being a technology-driven company. Big mistake, huge mistake. <coughs> Never do that. We're now a solution provider, and I try to get everyone I get into contact with to think in these terms. We took in a total of about 2.3 million from Angels and DTI awards, about eight and a bit million from institutional funding. We were generating revenue from about 2002, and our big thing was making nanoparticles for applications that customers specified. And uh, we, we've uh, carried on that to the present day. Floated on AIM in uh, July 2005. Took over an American company in December. Um, I'll say no more about that. And we did a deal with a Turkish oil company, which also uh, was uh, perhaps not the cleverest of things to do at the time. Currently, we employ about 40 people. Most of them now are in the States, and they've got very strong commercial and industrial background. And the current sales uh, tra trading of shares is not too bad at the moment. Could be better. Um, this was our early product where we were technology driven. We were trying to make phosphors for flat panel displays, and we were very, very good at it. Um, we, we could make these beautiful little spherical phosphors, which were uh, nanoparticles, there's a 50 nanometer scale bar. We could heat treat that to form little single crystals, and they were absolutely perfect right up to the surface. John Hutchison has always worked closely with me and some of the electron microscope pictures that he takes and uh, took in those days of these early particles were truly amazing and gave us confidence that we were making something that was exactly as we described. This was what it was for. It was to go into a field emission display which we thought would supplant liquid crystal displays. Dangerous thing to say in this department with Peter Raines, the inventor of the super twist pneumatic, but we did think that this would probably give you a very bright, almost flat display because this distance here is just a few millimeters. The mistake we made was assuming that everybody had got the emitter part sorted out and all we had to do was to supply this bit. Huge mistake. It just didn't happen. And all of our early orders for smallish quantities never materialized into large quantities simply because the likes of Motorola and Sony and others could not make these uh, emitter structures here. So the lesson here was, don't try to provide part of a solution if you're doubtful about other bits. Try to provide a complete solution. The product pipeline that we adopted after that uh, error is shown here. And this is more or less where we are today with this. Um, we, I'll describe the fuel emission catalyst and the sunscreens uh, in some detail. I will not today talk about the biodiagnostics, but what I will say is there's some quite exciting products in the background here which haven't yet got through the stage gate. Areas like novel printing inks, transparent conducting oxides for devices. Some work we did in Oxonica with Johnson Mathey in principle, the time has now come for some of these because they're required in solar cells. So there might be quite a big market for some of the oxide materials we developed about three or four years ago, but held back from at the time because we didn't think the market was big enough. This is the, uh, the stuff we label Envirox for cleaning up diesel. Uh, the diesel engine manufacturers have not been our best friends because improvements in the turbo diesel 
have made the necessity for this less and less needed as time goes by, but essentially this is based on cerium oxide nanoparticles. And cerium oxide has been used probably for more than a century in gas mantles and in paraffin lamp mantles to get rid of soot. So it's not exactly a, a massive breakthrough. It's been there all the time. But what our breakthrough was in making it small enough to go as a catalyst directly into diesel fuel. So it was a fuel-borne catalyst additive. If the particles are made very small, 20 to 40 nanometers, they will produce no abrasive action on the engine. They've got an extremely high surface area for their mass. And uh, in fact, in every little squirt of diesel fuel, you'll get thousands of these nanoparticles introduced into the combustion chamber. It's only added at the rate of between one and five parts per million. And there's no modifications to the engine. Now, the initial trials on this showed 15%, 10 to 15% improvement in fuel economy. Uh, that was on old-fashioned diesels. The more recent ones are still running at 3 to 4%, and that is what's put into the turbo-diesel engines of the stagecoach buses running around Oxford. It is producing fuel economy, but the really key thing is that it gets rid of all these horrible tangled-up nanoparticles that you get in diesel exhaust. So all of these little blobs of carbon glued together by unburnt hydrocarbon are got rid of by uh, this uh, catalyst. The other product, um, John Noland, I'm glad to see, is in the audience, uh, is, is a co-inventor with us on this. John came over and had coffee with us one day, and he'd been looking at the safety aspects of different sunscreens that were on sale in the 1990s. And he asked Gareth and myself if we could invent something that produced less skin damage than the stuff on the market at the time. And we were keen to try lots of ideas, and we, we had quite a few ideas at the time. But the idea was to use titanium oxide in nanoparticle form so that it was transparent to light. If you make the particles small enough, it doesn't scatter light but it's still got a band gap sufficiently big to give optical absorption and, trap and stop the UV rays getting to the skin. Now, titanium oxide, many of you will know, is one of the best photocatalysts known to man. And if you put this all over your body and go out in the sun, you're in the perfect condition to cause skin damage. So uh, you've got to be extremely careful. And what we found was that if you put manganese into titanium oxide, you didn't produce uh, this photocatalyst. In fact, you had the opposite effect. You, you produced a material which was almost the complete opposite of a free radical generator. And uh, this was a, a lucky breakthrough. It actually arose because of an accident in one of our final year projects here in engineering where somebody had got confused between magnesium and manganese and put the wrong <laughs> stuff in to titanium oxide. And uh, we kept the bottle in the, in the cupboard for a year, two years, and uh, Gareth Wakefield and I fished it out and tried it, and uh, amazingly it worked. Our other idea would have been more entertaining. I think at the time we were suggesting to John that we could produce some zinc oxide which would convert ultraviolet light into green light and hence... Uh, take away the photons and you wouldn't notice this green glowing on the beach <laughs> but in the evening in the disco you would really be <laughs> the centre of attention and I, I, I still regret not trying that idea in more detail <laughs> we might have had an easier marketing time of it, who knows this is for the technical people uh, here are the particles again this is uh, probably a picture taken by John Hutchison in materials very small particles of titanium oxide doped with manganese. And the manganese essentially produces a level in the middle of the band gap, so the Fermi level is shifted from here down to here, and that's about 1.7 electron volts. It's a huge amount of shift of Fermi level, and that's actually what I think stops uh, the formation of free radicals. Gareth and I still have arguments about exactly what is going on in that terms of free radical suppression, but I think that's the correct explanation. So what did we learn from all this? What we learned was that you mustn't allow core technology 
to push things. Don't rely on technology push. Provide solutions with your clever technology, but go out and look for people uh, who, who've got a problem and think how you might solve the problem. Another thing is to try to get revenue generation as early as possible. Future investors love to see this. They don't like uh, to see lots of equations on backs of envelopes and computer models. They actually want to see something really tangible. Sales and marketing people are very important in the team. And uh, right now I, I can see companies spinning out of the university and neglecting to really concentrate on sales and marketing. There should be much more emphasis on this. I think collaboration is a big thing with as many organizations and universities as possible, form strategic alliances, the speed time to market. And I'll say a little bit more about that later. Oxford Biosensors, the story really began, I guess, at a, at a, at a dinner in Queen's College where I found myself sitting next to Alan Hill. And at the time, oh, another thing, university, the department forgot to give me a laboratory as well as an office. <laughs> so... Um, uh, talking to any scientist at the time, especially somebody like Alan, was a great pleasure because you got the feeling that you might be able to do a little bit of work with them. And Alan uh, and I got together and we worked on ideas of electrochemical sensing. This was, of course, Alan's speciality. He invented the glucose sensor uh, here in Oxford. Um, we thought by combining the enzyme sensing that goes on in glucose sensors with microelectrodes, which we could make here in the department's clean room, uh, we might be able to come up with some really exciting new ideas of biosensors. Microelectrodes give you a very fast response time compared to large electrodes. And Peter Lee made some beautiful silicon-based structures here in the clean room. The cost of those was a bit on the high side. Uh, when we worked it out, we thought, well, they're going to be about £100 a pop, and you throw them away after use. Not, not a great idea, great model. But uh, as soon as the company was formed, we went over to a printed ink on plastic idea. A lot of that early work was done by Kevin Lorimer, who was uh, another engineering student from, from this department. And uh, the current target is to get 3% coefficient of variance with four analytes, for measuring cardiac risk. This is an old slide, but it shows the kind of thing that uh, the product looks like. It's about the size of a mobile phone, and all the clever business goes on in this little plastic strip here. And this is where the team at Oxford Biosensors has been working very hard for the last few years to get to this 3% CV um, uh, condition. And I, I think we're very, very close now to doing that and hopefully by this time next year we'll have revenues pouring in. That's, that's the hope. Now, as soon as we've got this on the market and we've got revenues coming, the platform that we're building here can be adapted to do a whole range of other things for liver and kidney function as well. And I think it will revolutionise the way that healthcare occurs because it will take away the necessity to uh, use large biochemistry labs in hospitals. You can do this at point of care in a clinic. So, again, what were the lessons? Uh, we, we think that originally the technology was far too disruptive for any license deals. The time to market is very long because of all the um, approval issues for the FDA. Um, complexity increased a lot in trying to get to, to reliability. A huge increase in complexity. And this is something which, as an engineer, you don't really want to see. You try, you're trying all the time to minimise parts count, process counts, and so on. But what's happened in this uh, sort of journey to get to this is that we've thrown up a huge number of basic science questions, little things like how do polymers cut, how can you machine them, bond them, how do things wet. These are fundamental classical physics chemistry questions. How do things dry and how can you print them? And a lot of these topics have just disappeared from courses. So you're going back to the sort of physics that, or chemistry that we used to teach 30, 40 years ago. And I think it's a great pity that some aspects like this have dropped out of modern courses. Now, there's a lot of gaps in all of this. The, the experience I've gained in these two companies, and I'm gaining at Begbrook, show that there's a massive gulf between science and technology. And I think this is very uh, topical at the moment. Is there too much pure science in the UK? 
And, uh, you know, with all the uh, discussions of what's happening to STFC at the moment, and uh, the cuts in some of the big programs, and they're all moaning about it, uh, especially the physics people involved in big science experiments. And, and I'm one who's going to say, yes, there has been too much emphasis on pure science, and uh, it, it's not a new phenomenon, but um, it's something we've got to do something about. In the academic world, um, science has always been okay. Technology's always very suspicious stuff. And I think the history of this department it shows that out in that engineering has always had to fight very hard within the university uh, to get acceptance. And I, I believe the same thing is, is going on all over the country at the moment. There's a huge gap in time between invention and commercialization. And I think this is an area where the experience of some of us in this department in recent years can help. C.P. Snow actually recognized it. I was subjected to this at school, you know, look at C.P. Snow's Two Cultures essays and everybody said it's arts v. science. When you actually read the essay again today and you look at it, it's nothing of the sort. He's saying some pretty drastic things about the gulf in understanding between engineers and scientists. And I've just picked a few of them out of that essay. And really, I think he was the first to highlight this and highlight it very strongly. Interestingly, he said all of these things at exactly the same time that Feynman was talking about plenty of room at the bottom in his famous lecture at Caltech. Feynman was often looked upon as the founder of nanotechnology, and it's interesting that he didn't do any of it in his time. Not a jot. There's not a single piece of scientific work done by Feynman, but he did give a very good lecture at Caltech the same year as Snow wrote the essay. <laughs> Now, to understand this time gap, just have a look at the few big inventions over the years. Uh, the transistors, it took 10 years at the very least to go from the first paper to actually making money out of them. Liquid crystal displays, more than 12. Even going back to General Electric and Langmuir, it took more than 10 years to go from the invention of the tungsten filament light bulb to actually being able to buy them. <coughs> Semiconductor lasers, at least 12 years. 10 years approximately for the enzyme-based glucose biosensor, which uh, Alan invented. So you've got to ask the question, why is there a time lapse and what goes on in that period? And if you can understand that, you could probably either make a lot of money yourself or help somebody else make a lot. Well, you, you get a lot of patent uh, filing and substantiation. You have to do a lot of market assessment, make business cases, scale up your production and all this sort of stuff. And this is not trivial, by the way. Scaling up from what you do in a bench uh, is quite hard work. And the other thing is, as we found out in Oxonica, markets can change. And suddenly the market that you're designing your whole operation for might vanish. So there's an awful lot of things can happen in this time gap. The costs are also interesting. I think you go up a factor of 10 each time. So when you go from research to development, as 10 times cost, um, then you ask whether there really is a market there or not, and you go into this manufacturing stage and there's another 10 times cost, at least. So each of these stages, the development and in manufacturing, you're going into skill areas totally different from your scientific research. And very little training actually exists to take people through these steps. Most of the training is experience gained in industry. This is a sort of, um, I, I pinched this sketch originally from a business school uh, presentation. Uh, no one would quantify what risk meant or value meant, so there's no units on these axes at all. <laughs> and nobody actually put times on here, but I've put 12 just to be consistent with what I've just stated. And what I'd like to try and understand, and I've been trying to understand this in my current job, is how to shorten this time or even understand the dynamics and and what these things really mean. Can you shorten the time gap? I think it's possible to do so, and I think the government really should do a little bit more to help, like it does in the States, with the small business uh, innovation research scheme. And there is, muted in the latest papers, and lots of them have come out on innovation recently. Uh, there were two in uh, March alone, one from the DIUS and one from the Treasury. They were a day apart. 
And they mention innovation uh, in virtually every other sentence. But they talk about the schemes, but they haven't actually introduced them yet. But it would be great if they did. Um, the risks and market dynamics need to be understood. And I think there's a bigger role for business schools and maybe even banks to get involved in this. There's a new culture of entrepreneurism needs to be instilled, and I think that's what is happening. So ideally, I'd like to see the 0 to 12 come down to 0 to 6 years, and I think you can do this by forming partnerships, uh, using toll manufacturing, identify a manufacturer who's nearly got your process already, and then uh, do a deal. So can we speed up innovation? I think we can. You mustn't push technology, is the message I want to get across tonight. Have a balanced team, especially get help on the sales and marketing side, and try to form partnerships wherever you can. And I think this is very important. Treat investors' money as if it's your own, and take them into your confidence and respect them. A lot of academics tend to take the money and run, and not <laughs> wonder why. <laughs> they do, honestly. And, and this isn't a good thing, because you'll never be able to get money again if you, if you take that line. Not from investors, anyway. I think we've got the environment out at Begbrook to make this happen, and it's largely because we work so closely with other colleagues in the university at all levels. Um, I'd just like to run through a few new things we've initiated. And one of the things which is really coming to the fore, and it's very, very exciting, is uh, nanoparticles in medicine. And a lot of this was kicked off by um, a colleague, Carl Morton, who's a London Technology Network fellow, who I uh, line manage in that capacity of his. And he's put together a, a, a loose sort of network uh, of people with common interests. We're designing also here, designing in the engineering department, image enhancement particles, uh, new particles for targeted drug delivery. So this was Carl. He helped to a lot of this. And Begbrook Nano plays a very big role in the analysis side of things. Ian Thompson joined us from NERC. He's now in the engineering department, albeit based at Begbrook. And uh, he's doing a lot of microbial uh, cell interaction work. So uh, we, we've built this sort of team. And I've added the IBME to this because colleagues in the IBME uh, want to use some of the nanoparticle expertise that we've built up. So very swiftly going around here, um, Carl's based in the Obs and Gyne department, um, along with Ian Sargent. Paul Harrison, who's here tonight, very glad to see him from hematology. We work with Adrian Harris on oncology, looking at particles. A lot of these, we're looking at particles that are already there in the blood, and we're trying to understand what role they play and how we can measure them more quickly. And Bika Boom, I'll show you some of her results in a minute, is our NIH-sponsored student. We've got a lot of instrument companies now on board talking with us. This is Ian Thompson's area, Phil Legrani on the microfluidics side, and then NanoSafe 2 is a project which Monica Ratoy, who's here tonight, is uh, the postdoc on. This is looking at the safety aspects of nanoparticles. So all of these come together in this... Uh, loose-knit but very effective network which we've built. Um, I guess a lot of it started with a student from engineering called Robin Taylor. He actually was an engineering undergrad and became a, a materials postgrad. And he and I were constructing really complex particles. We were self-assembling by electrostatic forces particles like this. Start off with a core of silica, put lots of magnetite particles around it, encase the whole thing in silica or some other material, and then we could put anything you like around the outside of that. We've done proteins, dyes, metals, and all sorts of things as these. And originally, this was curiosity-driven research, just to see if we could do it. This is uh, some microscope pictures showing this is where he got the outer bit too thick. In some cases, it's too thin, and little bits of magnetite are probably popping out of the particle. But you can certainly uh, take this now to quite an art and grow exactly what you want. And um, I'll show you one or two of those in a minute. Now, one of the questions we're just asking is, what happens when a nanoparticle encounters a biological cell? Ian Thompson and myself are taking biological cells. They're probably things like E. coli in the first instance, 
we're introducing nanoparticles and we're asking, do they just sit around the outside and decorate it and make it look pretty, or do they pop through the outer membrane and do terrible things inside? We're using Raman microscopy and spectroscopy in some of these cases, and we're finding that Raman spectroscopy looks like a very promising diagnostic because you can apply it in more or less the living cell conditions. This is a picture uh, taken by one of our uh, former students who's just gone to Sheffield showing silver nanoparticles decorating a microbe and not killing it. It's sometimes thought the silver kills everything. It doesn't necessarily. Sometimes it can just sit on the outer surface and show up the shape of the microbe. And we're trying to understand how uh, particles interact with living cells. Um, this is an uh, experiment uh, which Ambika Bum is, is doing, and she's working over in uh, America right now. She's a student registered in this department. She's worked with Lars Fugger on MS at the JR, but right now she's working on breast cancer um, cells in, in mouse models with Martin and Peter Choika over in, in Washington. And she came up with this very novel idea of having a nanoparticle, this is only about nine nanometers across, attaching some optical contrast agent to that. Uh, not shown on this diagram is a layer of silica which is holding the optical contrast agent onto the magnetite. And then putting around the outside of this uh, a recognition molecule, an antibody, in this case radioactive labeled. Now, the beauty of these particles is that you can get enhancement of the magnetic resonant image because of the magnetic core. These things show up in fluorescence microscopy, and these show up in a radio label picture. So we've got tri-imaging, so you can look at either things at the whole body level, or you can look at sections taken from uh, the cytologist uh, under the optical microscope. So you can go all the way from the cell to the whole body with this sort of approach. And we've made many, many particles of this type. This is one which uh, Carl Morton and Gareth Wakefield and myself are working on right now. We're taking a drug which has just come off patent, and we're putting it into a nanoparticle with a recognition uh, molecule on the surface, and we're designing this particle so it biodegrades. So having attached itself to a tumour, it begins to fall apart and leak the drug directly onto the tumour site. Um, at the moment, we're doing this without funding. We're getting these particles made for us by a colleague in Canada, and we're hoping to take one of the engineering students on during the summer to actually make these in the lab. Um, we've got a whole list of possible ones to do here, by the way. This is uh, an idea to take particles out of liquids, part of the NanoSafe 2 project. Um, it's a self-assembly method on a microscope slide or an electron microscope grid. Uh, Monica Ratoy has come up with uh, proving that this works. The idea is to take a slide or an electron microscope grid, pull, put on a polyanion, which is negatively charged. Then you can put a polycation on, which is positively charged. And Doing it in this sequential fashion ensures usually that you get a very highly charged outer surface. In this case, it's positive, so it will attract to it negatively charged nanoparticles. This idea works rather well, and if you take some Oxford tap water and uh, <laughs> subject it to an electron microscope grid treated in this way, you pick up lots of nanoparticles, really, truly huge amounts of them. And you can do electron diffraction, identify what they are. Uh, this particular one, there was lots of calcite. No big surprise there, but lots of calcite in it. And these are very, very small. And this leads me to, um, and, well, it'll leave me in a moment. I just put another one in between here, I hope. <coughs> yes. Um, just like to mention the work we started with Phil Legrani and Helen Townley and others. Helen's here tonight. Um, what we'd ideally like to do is to take something like Oxford tap water, or hopefully something more exciting than that, and take it into a device and then split the uh, size distribution into different outlet channels. You can envisage a whole series of different outlets where you size select into different, if you like, bins. So you could take a mixture of particles in here and going through one of these so-called split flow fractionators, uh, you could divide them up. 
the, a schematic here shows field. This field could be gravitational, electrical, magnetic, or even combinations thereof. So this is something new that's coming into uh, the activities of the department, really, as we speak. The slide here, this is uh, Johnny Seckham, uh, who I met... Uh, after we had a failed attempt to get a knowledge transfer partnership deal going, Johnny has this uh, device which is an electronic water conditioner, and it's very simple. He installed one in my house the other evening. You just wrap these coils around a water pipe. It goes through a box here of electronics, and essentially what you're doing is putting a low-frequency field here. It's not a sinusoidal field. It's got very sharp cut-on and cut-off, and if you put one of these on, you prevent scale build-up. Indeed, you completely modify any scale that's built up in your device. And we've had a couple of students from the department work on this. And uh, with uh, a former colleague of Johnny's, uh, uh, Walid Aboud, uh, we believe that this is a very old effect predicted by Dubai and Falkenhagen. So if you've got this double layer around a particle and you suddenly reverse the field, the double layer and the particle don't behave quite in synchronism with this, and you get some overshoot. So you're exposing the particle surface to some chemistry here that it wouldn't normally uh, be exposed to. And we think that this Dubai-Falkenhagen effect is one of the things going on in these water conditioners. And the implications of this for quite a lot of other uh, water and bio-related things are really quite, quite significant, I think. <coughs> Now, uh, those were particles in liquids. Under NanoSafe 2, um, there's um, some work going on at Begbrook. This is a modified smoke detector, which uh, Svera Myra is working on, uh, to try and get a reliable, very cheap method in the laboratory to detect leakage of nanoparticles into the air. Um, a smoke detector would probably do something like this, but uh, we think it's got to be souped up and quantified in some way, and we're currently in the process of doing this, and instead of just an alarm on putting a proper metering device on the end of one of these ionization-type devices so that you can pick up very small quantities of particle. Now, Sphero's got some clever ideas of doing a bit of crude time of flight within here to actually give particle size distribution as well. And we're, we're looking here to produce a device which is of the order of £100 or so, rather than the 100000 that an instrument that would do all of these things is currently. And if we're going to satisfy all the people who are moaning about nanotechnology, we're going to have to come up with something like this. This is some work in the engineering department with Steve Sheard, uh, Will Wang, and myself. Um, this is with Pilkington and Johnson Matthey. We're part of a group uh, of people with UCL as well involved, original DTI money. And the project originally was to take glass on a float line, and this is three metres wide, coming out at two metres a second of a float line, and changing its colour. Rather than waiting five days for the furnace composition to change, we wanted to have a constant colour, glass coming down here, and you spray something on to give the right architectural colour. The energy saving, then, is enormous, because you, you throw away the glass during the changeover period from the furnace. We did some preliminary work here in the department and found that you could colour glass uh, using a phenomenon called surface plasmon resonance. But then we had the further idea uh, that we should also tailor the infrared properties of the glass and get heat control. Uh, that actually wasn't in the original remit, but we've all grasped the challenge, as they say, and uh, we're now trying to embed particles like gold, silver and copper in things like titanium oxide, tin oxide, and so on, to get both the architectural colour that you need and also the infrared properties. Uh, here's a, another facet of the work that's happened while I've been at Bedbrook. Uh, Russ Egdall in chemistry and I tried to uh, get money for an oxide MBE system for many years. By the way, this was one of the lost opportunities. When I left Phillips and came here, because I wasn't given a laboratory, I couldn't be given a molecular beam epitaxy apparatus, which I could have taken from Philips to here. And that would have been 20 years ago. So Russ and I have waited 
about 17 years for this machine, and we finally got it. And uh, Annie Bourlange and uh, co-workers, these pictures, it's no surprise, were taken by John Hutchison in materials, show little islands of indium oxide growing on zirconium oxide. Now, the reason why we're all excited about this is indium oxide is the main transparent conducting oxide used all over the world for displays and solar cells. And we understand very little about the science of this stuff. And we've already found, for example, that the energy band gaps that are quoted are mainly incorrect. And uh, one of the outputs from this work is we've got the correct energy band gaps. That enables us to draw the proper diagrams to show how energy levels line up. But look at the beautiful uh, shapes of these things. This is just before they all coalesced into a continuous film. And we've been looking at the interface here, perfect uh, matching of the indium oxide with the zirconium oxide. And we've got a, a range of other oxides which we're just starting to work on in this uh, joint work. This is some uh, stuff which uh, started the year I moved from engineering out to Begbrook. This is what Peter Rocket carried on down here. It's electrospray, and it was geared originally to make nanoparticles, but quickly changed into spraying proteins and all sorts of interesting things into mass spectrometers. And we, we worked a lot on this with Carol Robinson, who at the time was in chemistry, but migrated to uh, chemistry in Cambridge. And uh, Peter and myself and co-workers, Steve Sheard and uh, a student, did lots of fundamental stuff looking at the way the Rayleigh-Taylor cone changes as you change the voltage. You go from this rather rounded meniscus with a jet, this is the Rayleigh-Taylor instability, to a very well-defined cone as you wind the voltage up, just a very small amount. And we've deposited nanoparticles, we've deposited gold, cadmium selenide particles, we've deposited proteins with this, and the equipment to do this exists in the department, uh, I have to say slightly underused, so if anyone's got an electro spray experiment they want to do, please get in touch. This is my penultimate slide. Um, this is some work with Peter Edwards. Uh, I collaborate a lot with uh, Peter Edwards in inorganic chemistry. Um, this is one of his slides of his um, hydrogen storage project where we're trying to invent new solid hydride materials to store hydrogen at slightly above room temperature. This is for the hydrogen vehicle, the hydrogen car economy uh, scenario. But I will say that uh, with Pete, I also work on a lot of oxide problems as well. And again, um, this is an example of where engineering really does collaborate with a lot of other people. This leads us into working with the folks at RAL doing some really nice uh, neutron diffraction on these materials because neutrons, of course, will pick up hydrogen and the position of hydrogen in lattices rather well. So it remains for me to finish there. I've been watching the clock and speeding up or slowing down accordingly as I was ordered to because there's 65 minutes, I think, recording time <laughs> totally. Um, I'd like to thank uh, Caroline Livingston and the whole of the Begbrook team. We're not a huge team. We run a site with 360 people up there on, on site, but there are only about 10 or 11 of us. Uh, so thanks to all of those. I'd like to thank all my past and present students and postdocs. They make life very interesting. I sure as heck make their life interesting by not being available at times, but I'm very grateful for them, really. Uh, and colleagues in engineering have been terrifically supportive as have those in the other departments of chemistry. I've tried to acknowledge as many as I can remember today, materials, biochemistry and physics, and now, of course, the medical division. Um, and I think the great thing of interacting with these people is that you're constantly learning new stuff. And when I came from Phillips back to Oxford, my main motivation, quite honestly, was not to get away from Eindhoven. It was to learn new stuff. And that, I think, I really have done. I've also uh, got to acknowledge many colleagues in business and industry, probably too many to mention, really. And uh, these people are often denigrated, but the South East England Development Agency have been fantastically supportive. Uh, they have actually uh, loaned us a lot of money for the Begbrook development, and I know they want to the support work going on in the engineering department, and uh, this is one of the things we're working on in the next uh, 
uh, year or so. And finally, I'd like to thank the wife and family for putting up with me. <laughs> it must be a real problem, that. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. 